I'm going to read a few poems from Lobster and a couple of poems from Slug. So both of these books, this is called Lobster and Other Things I'm Learning to Love. And the other book is called Slug and Things I Was Told to Hate. And it's all about things I've been told to be embarrassed about or ashamed of. So there's loads of different subjects. There's sort of a section on adolescence, a section on blood, section on a whole section on masturbation in this one, which I didn't expect, but I just had written enough poems about it. That was during lockdown, funnily enough. <laughs> A section on parenting and the books are both they've got stories in them prose memories and then all the kind of research around the poems as well but we've been talking loads about friendship Michael writes a lot about friendship I write a lot about friendship so I'm gonna I'm gonna read one of those poems from Lobster so this is called poem written one night when I was really missing some of my friends and it starts with a quote from Charlotte's Web the book which is Oh, that's good. So nice, fans. So nice. You have been my friend, replied Charlotte. That in itself is a tremendous thing. I just think there's not enough love poems, really, to friends. So this is for people that I was missing. And I wrote it after my daughter, who's now 13. She was having a sleepover with sort of five friends draped across her bedroom floor. And I thought, God, I really miss sleepovers. Why the fuck did I stop having sleepovers with all my friends? My friends are scattered across cities now, across countries and countrysides, distant as aeroplanes watched at night from a window, wondering where those miniature people strapped in might be going. Why did we scatter? Were those studies and lovers and money that broke us apart, birds migrating confused by the bright lights of progress, were they worth it? I can't tell if that light is a star or a wingtip. Either way, I just wish you were closer. Either way, I just wish you would knock on my door while I'm sleeping, throw a stone at my window and wake me so we can sit on the pavement and talk about nothing and everything and throw balls at the curb and never have left. The comfort of friends, I can talk about anything too. I miss you, like believing in fairies and God, like lone sheep in frost, I am freezing and bored of you not being around. I'm so sick of dates in the diary, and I keep missing the timing of WhatsApp chats, catching up on hundreds of lines of typed conversation I'm now reading alone. Fuck, where have you gone? I just want you here. Your face, not emoji emotions, palpably sobbing or laughing. I want to stay up till midnight just to eat ice cream, wonder which one of us will fall asleep first, hear how it sounds when you yawn in the morning. I want us sprawled on the floor of my bedroom, excitedly laying out all of the duvets and blankets and pillows and cushions across this hard, uncertain surface of earth till we are sure we'll be cosy enough. Thanks. Thanks. So that's a very soppy poem to start off with, but for any friends that you miss. Uh, this poem is about the Queen. And I did not know the Queen personally, but I was in England when she sadly died. And I was quite shocked at the reaction. I know it's sad when somebody dies, but I was quite shocked at how many people were really upset about it. Especially people that I was friends with that I don't think love the royal family or even think we should have one. And there was a sort of trope in a lot of the newspapers in England that compared the Queen to your grandma. So they kept saying the Queen was the nation's grandma. And one of my friend's grandma died the same week that the Queen died. And people kept saying, that's awful. It's two of your grandmas have died. Um, and she was like, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> this is about that. It's not to say not to be sad if you were a fan. But just the title of this poem is The Queen Was Not Your Grandma. And I think it's true for most people. 
on the planet. So, <laughs> Grey curls do not a grandmother make is an ancient English proverb I made up to stop my friends losing their fucking minds about the death of a monarch. It wasn't an easy life for her, you say. Cool. Neither was my actual grandma's. or the other people who died that day we didn't cry for either. Did she ever send you pocket money? The queen. Sellotape. Five twenty-pence coins to cards. Send them every week with a letter that said, I love you and keep working hard at school, my darling. Did she ever warm your towel after showers or bring cherry almond cake freshly baked when she visited because she knew it was your favourite? Did she ever visit you, the Queen? Were you even allowed inside her house? Did she ever tell you stories about her younger days? Like when your granddad, the first time he met her parents, pulled off the entire tablecloth thinking it was a napkin? Or that time her husband, inspecting the electrical equipment in a factory in Scotland, said it looked so crude it was probably done by an immigrant. Oh, sorry, that was the actual queen, not your grandma. (laughs) It's difficult to remember which is which, seeing as they both have grey hair. Sweet little woman that she was, running a global empire, head of a billion-pound business. Unlike your actual grandma, who didn't, whose funeral was so much smaller than the queen's, because less people loved her despite how much lovelier she was. Thanks. So this is called Blood Grandad, and it's a sort of love poem from my granddad, who was a great man, a lovely man. I got on with very well. But one of the things that I never really understood about him was that when I was at his house, we always had the tele television on in my house, like it just never went off. If someone really important was round, we put the volume down, but that was it. And um, every so often, my granddad would leave the room, just stand behind the door in silence, and then he would come back in two minutes later, and I never knew why he did it. And when I was a teenager, my mum told me that it was because he was so disgusted by the sanitary towel adverts that were on the television (laughs) even though the blood was blue huh in the UK adverts but he was so disgusted that they showed these adverts and they talked about menstruation that his silent protest was that he would stand up say nothing stand behind the door and then come back in later maybe he was just embarrassed but he said it was a protest (laughs) so this is a poem about all the blood that he didn't go and stand away for Blood, Grandad. Don't worry, Grandad. It's not that blood. It's just scuffed knees blood. Weak nose from a cold blood. Finger cut on paper blood. Tiny line of red blood. And you wish blood there was more blood because paper cuts never look quite as painful as they are blood. So don't worry, Grandad. Don't get up. It's not that blood. It's just kids' blood, just Tom and Jerry blood, cartoons before school blood, cat's brains bashed with saucepan blood, just fairy blood, just story blood, Snow White's lips as red as blood, Aurora pricked her finger blood, Rapunzel's lover fallen blood, thorns blinding both his eyeballs blood, so don't worry, Grandad, don't get up. It's just PG blood, just Fortnite blood, Harry Potter's Horcrux blood, just fake crime blood, just true crime blood, just crime book blood, just Rocky's blood, just Rambo blood, just Arnie blood, just Bruce Lee blood, just war films blood, more war films blood, more war films blood, just young boys, barbed wire close-up blood, a pan of all the bodies blood, corpses piled on poppies blood, just saviours nailed to crosses blood, just thorn of crowns, just game of thrones, just house of cards, just house of lords, just fighting blood, just violent blood, just dying blood, just dead blood. Blood. So don't worry, Grandad. Don't get up. 
It's not that blood. It's not birth blood. It's not <laughs> blood. Thanks. <laughs> I will do one more I'll do one more poem for you. So thank you very much for listening. I was going to do another sort of very slow poem about friendship, but I won't. <laughs> I, re- <laughs> I really love my friends. That's enough for you to know. I'll do this one because I never read it because it makes me sound like a psychopath. But you lot seem quite friendly, so I think it might be okay. <laughs> but the last section of this book is called Newborn, and it's all about looking back on the sort of newborn phases of having a kid. And I had loads of nightmares when I was pregnant, like loads of nightmares that my daughter was born and she was a goat. And I was like, that's a goat, it's not a child. And the midwives were like, no, take your beautiful child. And then I looked it up years later. I had lots of nightmares afterwards, that I, like exam nightmares, that I hadn't given birth. And I'd wake up still pregnant and had to go through labor again. Just so many nightmares of becoming a mother. And I looked it up and it is really common. Apparently pregnant women and recent mothers have many more nightmares than most of the population. And this is one nightmare that I had after I went back to work after my maternity leave and I'd just obviously been very in the thick of motherhood felt like I'd done something quite tremendous learned a lot and I was really low down in this company I was working for and I had to serve the coffee and somebody was like oh thank god you're back no one's made the coffee for months and and then I served the coffee and my boss was like oh looks like you've forgotten how to make coffee since you've been away and then he walked me like a child to the kitchen in front of everyone around the board table and then stood there and showed me like very slowly and then you put the coffee in the mug can you remember that holly um so I did that and yeah i had dreams for months about murdering him basically <laughs> so this is a poem ju- just about all those dreams <laughs> that i had but if you're not my boss it's fine So this is called Recurrent Nightmare After Returning to Work, Boiling. Then we'll pass over to the lovely Michael. For months, after that first week back at work, when returning from my leave, during which I grew a second heartbeat in clockwork with my own, heaved it screaming through my shapeshift bones as death crawled closer shadow, and I, bloody, loved and broken, pushed a thousand cries by day, a shawl of stinging stars each night, Sang daytime, bedtime lullabies as milk spilled from my insides through honeyed, heaving breasts. My entire being burst with a terrifying love like nothing I had ever known before. And you said, Christ, Holly, you've obviously forgotten how to make coffee since you've been away. For months after that, I dreamt your death in countless brutal ways. Most often boiling coffee. Sometimes you, tiny in my womb, your little bossy fists punching inside out, pleading for a breath, me cross-legged at my desk, refusing your release. Once I dreamt a forest, each bark bearing your face, each chunk your overbearing flesh, a lumberjack those nights. I took an axe happily to your kneecaps till every tree of you was felled, worrying, two time, <laughs> two times poison in the staff room biscuits. I'm not proud of this. Never been a fan of violence. The last time I remember woke me sweating from my sleep, bedsheet drenched, hands still clenched around your phantom neck, screaming as I stirred. Have you ever given birth, you prick? Have you ever felt a skull rip your grinning dick apart? Do not patronise a mother. Make your own fucking coffee. Thank you very much. Have a lovely evening. <laughs> On that happy note... <laughs> Thank you.
Thanks, Holly. Smaller than me in height, but not stature. How are you doing? Good. Nice to be here. Yeah, we've been conjuring this show for many years and we've ended up doing shows in Paris in maybe five or six different venues over the past few years. And it's uh, just such a, a sort of sweet euphoria to make it finally happen in this space. Uh, last time we were in the headquarters of Lush, uh, the bookshop there. They have an event space there. We've been in the cave of a Scottish pub called The Highlander. Not sure why they directed us towards that venue. I'm very Scottish. Uh, this is my posh international voice, as if I'm on BBC Radio. If this is tricky, this is as good as it gets. Um, but it's a short set, so we'll get through it together. Um, so, yeah, it's such a joy to be here. We've had the pleasure of staying with Shakespeare and Company quite a few times. We've done the podcast. We've done stock signings. We've trolled the bookshelf like a lot of you guys. So to be on their newly refurbished stage up here is just a true soppy pleasure. Now to get smuttier. So I'm going to read a couple of pieces from Boyfriends and then a couple of pieces from Cat Prince. Now, Boyfriends is technically a prose book, a non-fiction book, but I smuggled poetry into it every juncture I got. I flattened those fuckers out and hid them in between the chapters. I tried to blur the boundaries. Well, technically, that's prose, a poetic prose as opposed to a prose poem and tried to Trojan horse them into the book at every opportunity I got. And, and a few slipped through the cracks. Um, so Boyfriends is, is a book about friendship, where I guess we were talking about how friendship is a unifying factor between a lot of mine and Holly's writing. Um, but it started somewhere else. It could have very easily been a grief memoir. I'd lost my best friend in the world at this point in time, the dearest person to me on this planet in the friendship circuit. Um, not only that, he was one of my favourite singers and artists, an incredible human being called Scott Hutchison. He was in a band called Frightened Rabbit. He was a great artist. So not only... When he left, did I lose this immaculate friendship, but I lost a sort of creative inspiration, somebody that buoyed me up, that galvanised me, that was constantly reminding me that the work had to work harder, really, to push further, to be more tender, more vulnerable, all of those facets. So there was this sort of cataclysmic void that I had to fill. And I found myself on residency in a place in Northern Ireland called the Curfew Tower, owned by an artist provocateur called Bill Drummond. And I was writing about Scott. It was the only thing I could write about. It felt so raw and it felt so urgent. But I presumed I would write about the sort of fierce finality of grief. But I didn't. I, I ended up writing about our favourite moments together because it was those that I was missing. It was those that would do that friendship some authenticity. It was those writing about and re-inhabiting those moments that could bring me closer to being in his presence again. And upon revisiting those friendships, I ended up writing not a grief memoir, but something else. I ended up writing a love letter to friendship, to the friends here, there and elsewhere. Those friends we love to excess, yet somehow it still doesn't feel like enough. It became to those friends that we promised to make more time to see Yet we don't always manage to make those moments come to fruition. So we carry the anticipation of being in their company with us always. It became to the friends who've left this world before their time. How do we celebrate them? How do we trophicize them? What can we do to pull ourselves closer to them? There's some weird stuff in there about an accidental hamster murder and a Hobbit roleplay wank, but we will be concentrating on the friendship lore this evening. <laughs> 
And I found actually a lot of my seminal friendships, a lot of my most important friendships were forged around a dinner table where we'd maybe fought away from the clamour to put sustenance in our body. And I still find it quite a vulnerable thing eating in front of new people for the first time. I'm also quite a messy eater. That might be part of the plan. It's not a smooth operation. So I have to feel fully comfortable with them in that presence. And I'd had so many great meals with Scott. And on re-inhabiting the final meal we had together, I felt locked within that is my golden formula for friendship and that is the messier the meal the better the friendship <laughs> dinner with you and holly this is these are palmary moments no no i don't regret spending 75 pound on a seafood sharing platter aye that's a crumb indulgent and you call me a lush to holly's hilarity but we were twinned in this bonhomie I do not regret us gorging ourselves on a platter boasting an estimated 40 muscles, 60 prawn tails, 6 gargantuan langoustines, 12 scallops, 12 oysters and a heft of dipping bread. A platter most definitely intended for filling more than two bellies. Of course, there is wine. We would not do a meal such as this a disservice and be without it. The platter is its own constellation. It does not fit on the table for its circumference is akin to Jupiter. Not decommission Pluto. Fuck Pluto. <laughs> My ire for Pluto has built up over the years. That bit is not actually in the book. <laughs> and you and Holly have to swap seats so as we can battle this formidable foe together in formation. We are leviathans feasting with and on each other. The messy display attracts nods of reverence from onlookers populating the tables in orbit around us. These nods are a cloud of praise comfortably taken. This comfort in taking praise is far too rare for brilliant you. And over yonder, the island of sky sits down to tea with us. We address it in stories, in long glances cast over. On Google Maps, this water is labelled inner seas, off the west coast of Scotland, Atlantic Ocean, a very formal name for our salty guest, the ghost at the table. Whilst eating the platter, there is a dearth of chatter. Let it be known, this is not pertentious. It's the opposite, the gooey vim of not needing chit-chat. We are apples, here's our core, sprouting pips in every belly. Even vegetarian holly sooks a muscle back. But shush. Don't tell her family, or she'll never hear the end of that. <coughs> Sorry, Holly. This supper was garlic butter gorgeous. Love on its tiptoes. The last meal we had together, and one of your last on this whizzing planet. It wasn't quite fit for purpose, but I surmise you chip in with Michael. It wasn't far off either. P.S. Yes, we ordered starters as well. But these were modest and too alluring to let pass by. The pudding you shared with Holly was one step beyond for me, but you looked cherubic splitting it, and you were often one step ahead. PPS, by the time the £149.50 plus £20 cash tip cleared from my bank account, two days later you had left us, and something had left me. But right there, in that moment, we were brimful. It was love. Thanks.
other poets will say, oh no, save the applause till the end, you'll disrupt my flow. Whereas I say, thanks. <laughs> and then step away expectingly. It's needy, but it works. So although this book became something really joyous, really celebratory, I couldn't escape from the fact that I'd, I'd lost this dear person. And the last editorial note I got on the book at the time from the brilliant Alexa von Hirschberg, who was my favourite at the time, was to tell me a little bit about what grief felt like in the body, physically. How did it reverberate through your flesh, through your skeleton from that perspective? I wrote something quite long, and she ruthlessly edited it down which is handy given the time constraints of the evening. And it's called Defying All Science. Defying all science, grief feels its hottest when newly lit, before it's even started smoking, before the birds know to stop singing and be forever silent, before the embargo on mooting a date for the funeral's been lifted, before one of my friends knows not to throw a strop, because I haven't got back to his invite for a camping trip that apparently needs the numbers. Before any notion of talking in the past tense is fathomable. Before Auden's poem, Stop All the Clocks, could possibly be about you. Feels like a drug that's newly entered the body and will deliberately dawdle in making the rounds. Inside like a virus, the flesh bullying itself. My vital organs like two best friends who've for no real reason fallen out, yet on account of their hubris will never find a way back. Grief dissects us into our most helpless matter. My bones carry an unnatural weight in them, as if the marrow is turning to lead. My gait too is off, like that bike with a bent wheel that required me to cycle like fuck just to make it to market less than two miles away. I'm on the cusp of crying, ordering a cappuccino, but as for chocolate sprinkles, all the same, because that's what I used to do, although I've no idea why, because I've never had a sweet tooth. I am desperate for touch, then offended by the suggestion. I find myself looking into my own eyes, and every mirror I pass, eyes which have become bells that will not stop ringing till the jar cracks or the tongue falls out. Either way, it'll be over. It's been clumsy with meaning after having prided myself on exactitude where 140 characters feels a stretch. It feels like I've had my last useful thought and now I'm salvaging ideas from the mulch. Time is standing still till it races by a fox or a bird in its belly. Mostly, I feel exhausted, slow and eddying, heavier, whilst emptied of something I know will never be replenished, that I will always resent living without. I am heartbroken and coarse, whilst acutely thankful for all the wonderful people around me. I feel important and guilty about it. This is a bit of a change in tempo. This is about naked cat roleplay. Tried to think of a sort of middle-eight section there, something that could ease us in, but I figured it was better just to take the jump out of the grief into the naked cat roleplay. I was a fucking weird kid. I'm sure that comes as no surprise at this juncture in time. This is the fully formed adult version of that growing child. As you might surmise, there were a few stumbling blocks during the boyhood years. 
a particular period, an epoch comes to mind, where I was convinced I was more feline than human child. That is more cat than boy on those play dates that my mum would push into action. Fuck knows how. Confectionery bribes of some sort, I might imagine. I would insist on fully derobing, stark, bollock naked, declaring myself the cat prince, and then proceeding to pound around these perfect strangers' households, trying to recruit their children into my naked cat gang. This did not make for too many sequel playdates. For those that did somehow, against all the odds, come into fruition, they came with the qualification, the caveat, that I did not once more become the cat prince. To everybody's utter dismay and incredulity, this very rarely deterred me. The cat prince hung around for a fucking long time longer than everyone expected. In some ways, his back stronger than ever. This new collection of poems is called The Cat Prince and other poems. 50 other poems in there, written over a five-year period, all reduced to, subjugated to the moniker and other poems to let the cat prince roam free. That contained a spoiler, there is a cat prince in his eye both then and now. I am the cat prince, I declare, already on all fours, already balls naked in the house of Hasty, where there's Adam Hasty, Daniel and me. The Cat Prince. We're boyhood budbursts. Twelve years of silly in us. Now, Holly over here has asked me to explain that 12 is not the collective age of the boys. I was, in fact, 12 years old during this Cat Prince scenario. I said, Holly, I'm not sure that's necessary information. She thought it was quite vital, <laughs> given the circumstances. I said, but it's quite young and quite nascent in the Cat Prince years. She says, don't tell them that. <laughs> Adam laughs, frantic gas, guffaws, then pegs it to the bedroom, anticipating the chase. Daniel, wavering between cat and laddie, compañero and fugitive, succumbs to the Gnostic glamour, strips naked for a full feline transformation. I told you I was recruiting, both then and now. Down to our little bloods, little furs, ready to bringe past the chide of absent classmates who might well hear of this and smite us with shame. For we are cuddle kings, hankering after Adam's adulation. O moggy, moxie, we embrace the cat life, vow inurement to the side effects. Carpet burns. I'll be honest, that bit normally gets a bigger laugh. Thank you. Scrotal pimpling. The sacrifice of language in each falsetto yowl. As hunters, we're tasked by the creator. Our gaze, a crosshair. Our pounce, a ripple of bravura. Who else so skillfully stalks sunbeams? We do well here. It's those damn cats again. The neighbours would learn to yop. As I raced by, with a robin redbreast between my jaws. And Daniel finished shitting in the rhubarb patch. It's at that point you wish it wasn't a true story. <laughs> Maybe earlier in the poem, but that's the clincher. It's convenient not to think of the killer in us, assassin still, holding back our power. As we coil our new cat bodies to a spring, Adam clambers, feared atop the bed, 
And what happens next is louder than we'd hoped for. Adam's mum, startled by this cacophony, arrives, then screams, curtailing the play date. And later that night, she calls my mum concerned. No, my mum. She never mentions this. I can only assume she was wise to it. The mythos, the hieroglyphs. Fathom, we'd soon meet the type of trouble that can really shake boys down. Long days where the teeth tears it out of us and the claws don't stop coming. But not yet, I hear her whisper, not without this moment's orchestra of feeling. As a boy, I was whiskerless, weighed down by the nest of not squatting my belly. As a cat, so much more. Of course, as mother to the cat prince, she knew all this. I've got one final short poem. I was checking my stop clock to see that it didn't go over because we were talking about the strict 15 minutes and we were talking smack about people that fire on past their allocated time. So I thought I'll start a stopwatch and then I can make sure that I've got time for this final one-minute poem. But I didn't start the stopwatch. It was still on zero, zero, zero. So I'm going to presume that I do uh, if I cut this introduction short, which thus far I have not done. (laughs) Here is a very short poem about boys holding hands. I grew up with a sister and a mum who had loads of friends around them all the time, super sociable, um, whereas the males in my family were very stoic, very sort of unemotional, that whole notion of man up, swallow your emotions in your belly, silence their voice until they don't have anything to say anymore, keep your vulnerabilities locked away inside of you like a cage until they dissolve out of you. And of course, people implode if that happens to them in the long term and there was such a beautiful physicality to the friendships I saw by sisters and mothers around me they were linking arms having sleepovers telling sharing secrets under the bed sheets and I tried to emulate that amongst my male friends to disastrous effects so I'm trying to revisit that with more of a sort of euphoria boys holding hands become men holding hands because learning to dance starts haptic and here a rumple of pinkies the trill of palms another skin blossoms beyond its sleeve another fist unhooks its fingers like bud untethers its petals the anthesis of the hand for we are best friends slow sons gauche promise hold me as language drifts through the throat of the rest. Thank you very much. We were, we've had quite a few conversations over the last six years about different things and in different contexts. And we were emailing about what short conversation we're going to have tonight after your readings, what what we could talk about. And I can't remember if it was you, Holly, or you, Michael, that said there were maybe two points where your poetry overlapped. <laughs> one was, as we've heard a lot tonight, the theme of friendship, and the other one was oral sex. Yeah. We're going to begin with the friendship and then move on, to the oral, move on to the conversation about the oral sex if we have time before, before we finish. So let's, let's begin with, both, in both of your work, as you say, you write a lot about friendship. There are points where I think your visions of friendship overlap. There are other points where, because of your circumstances, because of your experiences, that the experience of friendship is quite different. So maybe we can begin by asking each of you to say what you have learned about friendship from reading 
the other ones work. Okay, so I think from reading Michael's work, I have learned how much harder it can be for men to make friends with other men. And I feel like a lot of men in terms of the very, that sort of close, not always, obviously it's generalisation, but that sort of close friendship where you really talk about your feelings or you know each other's sort of medical records from like a minute of conversation sometimes (laughs) I get with other women. I feel like a lot of men have that with women. So I think everyone talks to women about their emotional stuff, like women talk to women and men talk to women. But man to man, there seems to be a lot of pressure. So I've... (sighs) I think I've seen how difficult that can be. And as Michael was saying, this idea that you can be a bit jealous Mm -hmm. of female friendships or wanting to emulate that. And I can really understand. So I I think it's made me realise how difficult it can be for men. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is a good thing to realise, I think. Sometimes I think the weight of everything isn't then on women and I'd love it. Like quite a few people were saying that they've bought boyfriends for their male like women have bought it for their male friends so that they can maybe talk to each other rather than keeping on loading yeah, everything yeah. <laughs> on the woman. so there's that sort of negative side of it i guess and then the positive side of it that would be lovely for men to have more intimate i guess intimate is the word friendships yeah we'll pick up on that idea imagine if michael now says nothing <laughs> yeah michael first of all yeah i guess a lot of the obstacles that we come up against for friendship it sounds something unusual to say that you're coming against up against obstacles to celebrate your friendship were highlighted more stridently uh, for me via a lot of Holly's writing. She's a mum, she lives in a village, there's a lot of families there um, and a lot of people present themselves around her as if to say that you don't need your friends anymore because you've got your child, you've got your family life, mm-hmm. you've got the, the community in the village um, and all <laughs> of a sudden there's this subjugation of the need for friendships but Holly's obviously lit a fuse for the fact that we'll make love and lose more friends than any other category of human relationship and just because we're swallowed up in this family unit most of our time through love through effort through strain through pleasure through all of that makes our friends not less necessary but more vital to make us better parents to make us better lovers to make us better and more complete human beings within that family outfit in fact one does not negate the other in fact there are these sort of two lungs operating in tandem and if your friendships are healthy your love and your parent affairs will be healthy at the same time that whole cyclical notion of them and the fact that your husband and your kids are not your best friends the, your best friends are still your best friends. You can have, be friendly with them, but it's a familial love. And the nurturing of your friendships is still so even more necessary and how utterly vital to celebrate that. Especially when you're late for the school run uh-huh. and, you, and you really need to find someone to pick up your child. <laughs> what do you think it is, Michael, about, about male friendship? Because like, we, when, when we read your books and we, we hear you reading... We get a sense, like, for you, is it something, this urge for friendship, for, like, male friendship, that, which seems maybe to go against the grain of what society might force on you? Is this something which comes very natural, naturally to you and you have to, and you feel that you're working against the grain? Or is it something which you see as a, an ideal and you have to fight against maybe things in yourself to pursue? Yeah, so it comes naturally to me, but naturally suggests it 
to be more skillful than it actually uh-huh. is because I had a career of deterring friends from people <laughs> recoiling from me, from humiliation after yeah. humiliation, spilling out the edges, giving too much too fast and scaring off all the sort of stoic males I had around me. And it was actually about revisiting some of the friendships that were rescued from the ashes and finally finding those that you smoosh together with the same chemical vivaciousness that you were offering at that point in time, the euphoria and finding them, but actually then revisiting those friendships that aren't in your life anymore, paying tribute to them, not as failures, but as the ingredients, the cocktail of ingredients, which then became your invitation to create your playing card, which then made those no more seminal friendships actualize or happen. Mm-hmm. Like all those failed friendships and the failure to achieve those friendships when you wanted them too much um, and the lessons you learned from there are what made you more more immaculate friends than the ones that did success it did succeed so yeah it was it was a long history of failure I think there's also a lot more homophobia mm-hmm. towards men in that respect like the idea of men being close physically there's much more likely that other guys are then going to have some homophobic trope mm-hmm. which I don't think happens really as much there's no fear that if i link arms with a girlfriend that somebody's going to shout lesbian at us in the street whereas i think there is that with men and actually the only places that i know or countries that i know where men do traditionally hold hands are countries often where being gay is still absolutely outlawed mm. so it's not oh great this is so free it's you can't possibly be gay because that doesn't exist so therefore you can <laughs> hold hands that's interesting I'm curious to know whether you think, is there something fundamentally different between, for example, the friendship that two women can have together, the friendship two men can have together, or the friendship that a man can have with a woman? Or is it, do the differences, are they essentially at base the same? They, they can have the same qualities, but it's a society that sort of looks at them differently and shapes them differently. I think so. That's a short answer, but I think they can all be the same. Like the idea, we still have people asking online, especially from the US, I think from like blogs and podcasts. And do you think a man and a woman can be friends? Yes, I do. That's the end of the conversation. (laughs) But I I really do. I think it's ridiculous to think that you can't. And I do think it's just this idea. Even from my daughter being five, if she becomes friends with a boy, they're like, is that your little boyfriend? Mm -hmm. Like immediately it's put on you as soon as you become friends with someone of the opposite sex, then it's like, that's a boyfriend. Or as soon as you put a poster up in your room, then it's okay, that's the person you fancy, but that's the person you would want to be friends with. So I think we just constantly put it on kids all the time in that respect, which makes it harder. Like My daughter's got a really close friend who's a guy, has always been one of her closest friends, but they don't talk to each other at secondary school. But as soon as they start at secondary school, it's okay, so we'll be friends at home, but we can't be friends at school. Now it's fine, they're a bit older, but it was really because everyone will just tease us mm-hmm. as girlfriend and boyfriend. So, yeah, I think it's, personally, I think it's society. Yeah, me too. I guess that's the thing, is, is being unashamed to call your friendships romantic. You throw yourself, when you make a new friend, you're full, you're effervescing over with all of the same chemicals of when you fall physically in love with someone that you're having a physical romantic relationship as well. The, the book comes with a banner, perhaps friendships are the greatest love affairs of our lives. And I, and I wholeheartedly believe that, and vehemently believe that, singularly, collectively, from that perspective. You give yourself completely to your friends when you're in that, these really intense, 
tense, intimate situations. And if you break apart, it feels no less destructive than if you leave a romantic relationship. In fact, sometimes you've maybe had more of the guards down. You've been more open, more vulnerable in those situations. It's just, yeah, I think it is really nebulous. It's about what we're expected to be. The notion of a male friendship being romantic without being physically romantic is just the complete niche genre at this Mm -hmm. point in time. And hopefully we're evolving past that. It's it's fascinating, isn't it? Because... I don't know. We, we, as you said, it's it's one of the most important things in our lives. It can be as intense, sometimes more intense than the romantic relationships. And then I'm thinking of literature about friendship. Mm. As present company accepted, people don't and haven't written about it, or certainly not given it anywhere near the same centrality mm. as we give romantic relationships. Is there something? difficult about writing about it in a sense do we have you found when you you write about it that there's we lack a vocabulary for writing about it for speaking about it that we don't lack for example for romantic friendship relationships i feel like maybe it's also to do with the publishing industry there were so many themes and topics that haven't really been talked about but i'm sure people have been writing about them for years it's just they haven't been deemed worthy of being published maybe that's not the case with friendship and there are lots of novels that talk about friendship but I just feel like we're, we've obsessed over yeah. this kind of idea of romantic love and like other themes obviously that haven't been spoken about I yeah. found that with motherhood it's like who would want to read that who who would that be for if you write about being a mother it will only be mother is it a guide to motherhood then why would we publish that sort of thing but yeah I feel like people would have written about it I guess it was less easy to just talk about loving your friends though like it has really been drummed into us that marriage and children really is the be all and end all of love the love hierarchy at the top here and friends are not they're not given that same importance historically I don't think although lots of novels related to friendship (laughs) I guess I was constantly trying to recategorize boyfriends out of either biography or memoir into no it's friendship literature don't get me wrong there's not a big bookshelf on that in most bookstores at that point in time but I would try and insist that it was friendship literature and more than getting when I was doing the book festivals I would always try and encourage them to put me on books that cross the genres whether it was poetry fiction non-fiction that were related because of the notion of friendship the lore of friendship from that perspective just to just to solidify it to crystallize it to write a few light a fuse for it Faber had published just before boyfriends uh, Andrew O'Hagan's Mayflies, which was a sort of auto-fiction book about male friendship. Friendaholic came out just after Boyfriends, which is an incredible one. And anytime book festivals, because well as do my own events, I curate a lot of events and build a lot of events for book festivals. Edinburgh Book Festival were in contact with me again this year, and I said I want to do... They said, we want you to do one of our big celebration nights. I said, OK, we're going to call it the Big Friendship Fandango. And I'm going to pull in <laughs> musicians, lyricists, people from all across the genres that, that write about friendship. And just feel like it is this overarching theme that that needs to be immediately reminded that it's still here. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it's the same in music, isn't it? And also children's books are full of friendship. It's, it's just like apparently as you become an adult, then it stops. Yeah. Like yeah, that's, yeah. It's, it's childish. And there's I, a few songs, like Louis Armstrong's song. I loved that yeah. song when I was younger, What a Wonderful World. And it was the first time ever I'd heard somebody saying, it's like friends holding hands saying, how do you do, is actually saying, I love you. And I was like, oh, yeah. Like thinking back to all the things that I never said I love you to friends, but I really did love them. It just wasn't really seen as love. But yeah, ch- children's books are full of friends. Even teen fiction's full of friends and then adults. 
I try and do Just this. Don't, don't have them so much. In the, in, so I'm writing residence at Edinburgh University at the moment and I get asked to do workshops at various places, but I always try and do an atypical love poetry workshop, especially in February, the Hallmark Lovers Month, and do love poems to our friends, to our pets, to our parents, to ourselves. Like Ocean Vuong's Ode to Masturbation is a good one, that inexhaustible self-love, and just sprinkle across the notion of love as pervasive outside of the long-term monogamous romantic relationship, which is also brilliant, but we need to orbit around that universe as well. I did a great talk on friendship in literature uh, for UNESCO Cities of Literature with Val McDermott and we were talking about the love letters written between Robert Louis Stevenson and J.M. Barry who wrote so you've got like Peter Pan and Treasure Island there and they're just declaring their love for each other it's just these 10 years of soppy friendship love letters <laughs> and how that manifests in contemporary literature as well Val McDermott has got a band called the Fun Loving Crime Writers and it's just a big group of crime writer friends because you get pushed together so much and no, Ricky was about that, the spoken word night I ran, ran back in the UK. It was just this sort of group, this cartel of writers that just loved each other, appreciated each other and wanted to buoy each other up at every opportunity. So it was taking these historical examples and matching them up with contemporary manifestations of just friendship reigning supreme. Mm. It just struck me on the subject of novels about friendship, even if they are fundamentally about friendship, that's not how we talk about it. I was just, just as we were thinking about that, I thought, on the road which when people talk about it, it's about like travel, it's about jazz, it's about sex, it's about drugs. Actually, it's about friendship. It's about one guy writing about how much he loved this other guy. It's not either or, is it? There's so much talk about it at the moment. Like you don't have to get married if you don't have to have fun. You don't have to have a lot. It's like you can have a lover or a husband and still have friends. Like they're not mutually exclusive things. I find that quite odd at the moment in all the talk about it. I did a wee talk where I tried to compare... Train spotting. I tried to say that was a male friendship love story because <laughs> you and use was it Socrates's categorizations of friendship, friendships of value, friendships of virtue, friendships of convenience, um, said rent, and said and related them all to Renton to Spud was the friendship of virtue existed there. <laughs> Renton and Sick Boy was the friendship of convenience, and then friendship and Begbie was the friendship of habit. It was there. So I tried to say that recategorised train spotting as this sort of friendship love story as well. I told Irvin about my feedy. He was amenable but unconvinced. <laughs> <laughs> what is the relationship bet- for both of you with friendship and creativity? I get the sense, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Michael that you often, with, with your friends, you often enter into kind of creative sort of experiments and partnerships and things like that. And I get the feeling with you a little bit more, Holly, that you, you keep that, your sort of creativity, your poetry a little bit separate and your friends in some way is connected to another part of your life, a more kind of perhaps yeah. kind of everyday side, we might say. Yeah, I think that, but I think that's also a practical thing. Like I live in a small village. I have a child. Mm-hmm. Michael lives in the sort of centre of Edinburgh and Glasgow and works for 10 years sort of run, running arts events and nights. So he knows a lot more people in the arts whereas most of my friends brilliant friends are people that I've either met through having a kid or their friends I'm a bit wary of making friends that I've met through poetry Mm -hmm. like if someone comes up to me and already knows my poetry and likes my poetry then it's that would be weird to become friends with that person (laughs) I'm a bit wary of it or people in publishing that I know a lot of people obviously become friends with their colleagues, but I don't really have colleagues, mm-hmm. like I was saying. But I do have colleagues, but all those colleagues have to be nice to me. 
they yeah hopefully they like me but if they didn't they'd still have to be nice to me because they're like wanting to publish the books so yeah my friends are a bit more outside of any of that see we still have lots of great conversations and talk about things like that but yeah they're they're not I haven't met them through those means but I, I think I I love that I think after four days in cities and doing arts events I'm desperate to get back and talk to someone about I don't know, just about other things or, or not, not about poetry sometimes. I like that as a possible um, definition of friendship, someone who doesn't have to be nice to you. <laughs> yeah, but it really scares me because I just think you really do have to be nice to me. Like you, yeah, paid to be nice to me in a way, which isn't a great basis for friendship. I think as well, I was thinking about this with, and I know there are lots of fathers that are really hands-on, but in terms of motherhood, like friends are so vital bringing up, my child and I think a lot of that is the same with people that have emigrated to different places that don't have family around there's a big sort of group of us who don't live near our family like mine are only three hours away but others are in Poland in France and like I I couldn't cope with doing my job so my creativity I guess comes from the fact that my friends will have my kids over (laughs) for a sleepover and then I can concentrate on my writing and without that like I think there's like this massive support network which is bigger amongst women. But maybe that's because historically it's had to be, because you really needed that help uh, a bit more. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's changing now. But when I see, I guess, like, dads on the school run, they're often in the minority where I live. It's two of them. Yeah. And they find it hard to access those sort of friendship groups at first. Still, for that reason, oh, you're having a play date with a dad, as if we're just going to shag each other while they're like kids it's like ridiculous that you can't do this but um, yeah I think there's been this like necessity for friendship and I really trust my friend like I trust them with my kid which is like the biggest amount of trust that I can have with someone I think yeah I guess a lot of the collaborations with my friends have been one out of a reverence for them as artists and I've maybe met them in the artistic circle but it's also to just spend more time with them like with Scott we did the Oyster book together because he's so busy writing rabbit tours writing new albums and I was running the Noiriki shows but if we did this book together he illustrated it I wrote the poems and we did it together it could be like a ticket to travel so we'd go to South Africa for three weeks and do two shows it wasn't a hard run on the tour schedule it was an excuse and a justification to spend more time together and do holidays together because so many of them are such busy people that if it masquerades as work then we can pile it into that this real sort of social fandango to go alongside it so it was justifying long longer periods of time together more immersion in each other's lives so there was the collaboration because they were brilliant at what they were doing but the actual show element of it was really just a means to an end to then say, okay, and now we can go off on a 60 animal safari. (laughs) And it's tax deductible. It's tax deductible. (laughs) If if you talk about poetry while you're there. You mentioned Scott, and I guess this we can't talk about friendship without talking about one big theme of it that comes up, again, in both of your works, but I think particularly maybe in yours, Michael, with the end of friendship. And one thing that's, whether that be through a falling out or whether that be through the someone moving away and just falling out of contact or in the case of Scott, somebody dying. Um, and I'm curious, one thing I find, found very impressive and quite moving while reading Boyfriends was this thing of, it didn't put you off friendship, actually. There was this kind of real, this, the, anyone who's read the book will feel, understand the profundity of the loss. And yet, you, when you get to the end of the book, there's no sense of, okay, I'm done with this, it's too risky a sensation. Was there ever a moment where you might have taken that path of 
I don't think so, no. The person I was missing was silly and sexy and smutty and playful and all of these brilliant things and wasn't the sort of lugubriousness of grief. That was the that was like corporally, temporally was no longer there for me to put my love into, but I just saw grief as the final manifestation of loving someone from that perspective. And in anything, it made me more enamoured to be more vulnerable in friendships from that perspective. All of those brilliant life-defining moments I got telling them how much I cared about them. I didn't want to make that mistake with any other friendships. So alongside writing about a tribute to Scott and a homage to his friendship and everything it taught me, I wanted to celebrate all my on the face of it failed friendships where we'd where they'd been super seminal super important to me but geography had moved us apart or we'd had a falling out or distance had moved us apart or we'd just lost touch in that sort of indefinable way that nobody really knows how it happened it just dissolved but I wanted to pay tribute to them as well to the ephemeral joyous versions of myself that I was in that friendship where it was everything where it was all consuming even though I didn't want them back in my life they're no like Scott they were still walking unlike Scott they were still walking this earth but I just wanted to celebrate the version of the friendship we had without trying to fecklessly or ersat recreate it it was enough that it existed and it edifies me still I also love that from the book I just think so often and it's the same with romantic relationships I think like with divorces or separations with friendships with lovers with married couples that there's this idea that it's a failure if it ends and it really messes with people's heads and I love that about your book the fact that you were like this was a great friendship for this time and it's okay that we're not friends now or I guess with the relationship it's okay that we're not dating anymore like it's okay this doesn't mean it's failed just because it ends and if you judge (laughs) the relationships in your life like that you're going to have to be friends with everyone and keep going out with every single person you ever date for you to be like a success in life yeah that was it was a very helpful part of reading that book for me as well to finish tonight, and without wanting to set you both up as kind of friendship gurus or anything. Talk <laughs> um, so to our friends, they'll be like, fuck, they're awful. <laughs> <laughs> if each of you were to give one sort of, either one piece of advice or one piece of wisdom or one sort of sentence about friendship for our audience tonight to, to take away with them and mull over and reflect upon, what would that be? Mine would maybe be practical. I remember when you were on a panel about male friendship, that, but there was one woman on it, and everyone was like, it's harder for men, it's harder for men. She was like, also, it takes a lot to stay in touch with your friends, yeah? And I do all of this, and my husband does fuck all in terms of keeping in touch with his friends. So I think that sort of practical idea of it takes work. Like There's that phrase, relationships take work. And it's always been told to me, but it's always been told to me in terms of sexual relationships. Marriage, like, it takes work, stick together, it takes work. But I think friendship takes work as well like it takes work to remember my friend's kids birthdays or remember to meet up or plan everything in the diary and I think it's worth it if you're if you want to concentrate more on the work of friendships then that's great and it's as important and keep doing it and normally when you get in touch with a friend they are also really excited that you've done that sometimes I'm worried that I haven't seen that person for a while shall I ask shall I get in touch with them but I think every time I've done that and every time someone's done that with me I've been absolutely elated so I'd say go for it just go for it yeah much in the same sort of vestige 
hug your friends, tell them you love them, think yeah. about them, get in contact with them. If there's difficult conversations brewing that you've found yourself somehow unable to have, held back, caged from having, send them a book, play them a song, offer to take them to a concert that galvanises or initiates that conversation because... Um, whatever you're trying to say has been said in some capacity and use that as the impetus to pick that conversation back up and get into the sort of gooey emotional zest of it all. So yeah. Maybe buy them a book about friendship. <laughs> <laughs> Give them a nice book with friendship poems in it. <laughs> On which Very subject? valid, Holly. Very valid. Um, we are out of time. We'll have to save the oral sex for your next visit. Um, but don't feel you have to rush off immediately either. Stick around, have a glass of wine with us, continue the conversation with Michael and Holly, continue it with each other. All that's left for me to say is please join me one more time in giving a big thank you to Holly McNish and Michael Peterson. Thank you, guys. We want to say a massive thank you to Adam and Sylvia and the whole team here who've just been so luscious, so accommodating with us, let us stay with us, them, let us linger in the bookshop and have been such like effervescent and joyous champions of our work for the past few years. And it's thank such you. a boon to have a bookshop like this. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.